And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. So the question I'm asking this morning is how do we define greatness? And often, if you're a little kid, you define it by getting trophies. A couple of years ago, I went back to coaching again, and I was coaching t-ball. So these kids are five years old, and they are terrible at baseball, but they're really cute, and so they're fun to coach. Um, but they, at the end of the season, Vienna Little League gives a box to every coach. The box is filled with trophies, one for all 12 players. We hadn't won anything. You don't even keep score in t-ball. You don't know who wins or who loses. But at the end of the season, I'm supposed to give out a trophy to every single kid. It's called a participation trophy, and the kids absolutely love them. So, of course, I tell stories about each one of them, but in reality, none of them earned it. They were not good at baseball. Maybe one was. Maybe one kid deserved a trophy on that team. The other two maybe a plaque, but really not much more than that. But every one of them got a trophy, and when they got the trophy, their eyes lit up. They were so excited. This was the greatest thing they'd ever received. And of course, we laugh at that, and we talk about participation trophies. But as adults, we're, we're not that far off. You go into any office setting, and what do people want? They want titles. They want titles associated with their name. I'm the manager, the director the senior director, vice president, senior vice president. And while many companies will have uh, bonuses, you know, kind of a payout at once a year, the portion of your salary or something of that effect, I bet most people, if they were asked whether you would take the bonus or a title and promotion, they would take the title promotion. And here's part of the reason, is we're always living comparing ourselves to one another. And I don't know how much other people in my company make, and so the bonus, if it's a portion of my salary or whatever, no one's going to see it. 
But if I go from being manager to director, oh, they will see it. I feel better and more powerful. I want that trophy. Basically, deep down in, we don't feel good unless we can compare to others in a way that builds us up. Greatness. C.S. Lewis, commenting on this sort of concept, or rather on pride, says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next man. How would we define greatness? Having more of it than the next man. Whatever it is. All of us personally have a definition of greatness. Things we're after in life to measure us and make us know that we matter. And that's what it really boils down to is we all want to matter in this life. We all want to feel like we matter, that we are important. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples have a view of greatness too. And in their view of greatness, they realize that they're on the cusp of this sort of greatness with Jesus. Jesus is popular, everyone's following him, and they're heading to Jerusalem, and they're on the cusp of greatness with him. But Jesus redefines greatness in a way that overturns their view and every other view. We get it starting in verse 32 of chapter 10. It says that Jesus and the disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. So they've now started out on the way to Jerusalem for Passover in order for Jesus to be crucified. And as they're walking up, he tells them once again. It's the third time that he has told them. In other words, this is really important for him and for them to know about. They're walking towards Jerusalem, and Jesus says to them once again, the Son of Man will be condemned, rejected. He will suffer many things. He's going to be killed and then rise from the dead. And he's inviting them into his own turmoil here, his own knowing where he's going. He's heading there with his face set, I'm not turning back but he's going there knowing what he is going to endure and what he is going to suffer. And he's inviting them to come along with him and say, I, I'm about to be dealing with the hardest thing I've ever dealt with, that any man ever has dealt with. This is what is about to happen. I'm going to a cross. And James and John then sidle up next to Jesus, probably like one on either side of him. And they're like, that's like super interesting, Jesus. Ooh. So when you're in your glory, let's talk about what's next afterwards. It's like they completely blow past what he has just said to them, what he's been inviting them into. They have no idea that what he's just saying, what, what it has to do with, because they seem to come up and, and they're like, hey, okay, so that's, you keep talking about yourself, but it's time to talk about us, don't you think? Like you're gonna go get, become king. You're going to be coronated. And when that happens, well, you know us. We're two of the three closest to you. And really, James over here and me over here, John, like, we should probably be your right-hand man. You need some people to help you to lead. You need some people to help you to rule, to judge. You need some senior vice presidents to be in your C-suite. We are there for you. You need a prime minister. You need a chief of staff. That's us. We're leaders, we have the resume, we're well-respected by the other disciples. Everyone knows that we belong here and we're here to help you, Jesus. What do you think? And of course, we read that and we're, we're aghast. We're like, that's just absolutely counter to what Jesus is talking about. 
But we have to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. They were first century Jewish people living in that world, and there was expectations of a Messiah. And the expectations of a Messiah was that God's anointed would come and overthrow the enemies of God's people and establish a kingdom. And it went like this. A Messiah figure would gather the 12 tribes of Israel, would go to Jerusalem, God's city, to overthrow evil and darkness and establish his kingdom and reign. And here they were, the 12, representing the 12 tribes, going with Jesus, clearly the Messiah guy, to Jerusalem. It was about to happen. They were going to overthrow and take over. This is a revolutionary movement, and they were very aware of it. And so they just want kind of what's owed them. A king becomes king, and he owes titles or land or money to those lords who gave him allegiance. They're like, hey, we're part of the 12. We're aligned with you. We're going up with you. Just a few titles. They're simply confident and ambitious, and they want to be leaders. And if we were to answer this question, like, how do you get a promotion or make a sale? Well, you have to make the ask. You got to put yourself forward. They're just doing what we do, what we would teach somebody how to do. Promote yourself. Make the ask. So how many can I put you down for? You don't make the sale. You don't get the promotion if you don't ask. Little ambition is pretty good, right? Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? The word cup especially is an Old Testament uh, metaphor that's used regularly in the Old Testament to, to mean what God allots a person, what God gives a person. It can be joy, like my cup overflows, or wrath and judgment and suffering. And I think in this case, it's clearly he's talking about the cross. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And their answer is, yes, we're in all the way. And I think what they have in mind is the yes that I would have had when I was a kid. As a kid, I thought of greatness. My vision of greatness was actually war heroes. The idea of storming the beaches of Normandy. And I wondered in my head as a little boy, would I be able to do that? Could I lead? Could I go fighting for my country, that sort of thing, that vision of greatness. And I think they had that in their head. This idea of valiantly fighting the enemies with the Messiah, they've got the great one, Jesus, they will win, but they're willing to go to battle, even to death. Yes, Jesus, we will go into battle with you. We will drink the cup that, that you're gonna drink. And Jesus, of course, knowingly says, you will drink the cup, you will be baptized. You will suffer. You will endure shame. Some of you will go to a cross. And when the ten heard about it, they were indignant, which is great. It's probably something like this, or at least this is how I was picturing it as I reread it and reread it, is Jesus is walking along. The disciples are all behind him because that's what it says. And then James and John probably sidle up next to him and they begin their conversation. At which point, Jesus begins to respond back to them. Can you drink the cup? And they're like, of course we can drink the cup. And he says, well, you might be drinking the cup. And then I think he probably raised his voice where he was like, but to sit at my right and left hand is not for me to decide. At which point, the other ten are like, wait, well, what? What's going on up here? 
They were indignant because they felt they had a right, a claim to it as well. How about we cast lots? How about we arm wrestle? Let's make this fair, Jesus. Let's wait till after the battle to decide who gets the right and left hand. And Jesus, of course, (laughs) has to give them another teaching moment. And he says to them in verses 42 to 45, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Starts off by talking about the Gentile leaders. He's like, the value systems of this world. In the value systems of this world, leaders subdue. People serve them, and they sit in places of honor. Everyone is under them, and they rule people. And Jesus is getting them to answer a question we should all be asking ourselves as we read something like this, which is, how do we use, how do I use any position that I have, any authority, any abilities, any connections? Generally speaking, any any kind of resources we have, we use to influence people or to protect ourselves, or to promote ourselves, whatever it is to get our own way. And Jesus says, it should not be so among you. Rather, in my kingdom, verse 43 and 44, greatness is being a servant. You want to be first? Be slave of all. Greatness is being a servant. Servant is the Greek word diakonos or deacon, It basically meant busboy or waitress. You want to be great? Go clean the tables of every single person. You want to be first? Be a doulos, slave. Doulos is the Greek word there. A doulos was somebody who had no rights. They were the lowest person in society. They answered to everyone. You want to be great in my kingdom? Serve. Count yourself least. Jesus is reversing all the values that they understood in their culture and just as humans. For even the Son of Man, he goes on to say, came not to be served, but to serve. Think about what he's saying right there, okay? He's using a title for himself, Son of Man, which is a technical term, a title like Senior Vice President. If Son of Man basically meant Christ, Messiah, God's anointed, the King. He's saying, I am that guy. I am God's chosen king. But even I, who have all the status, all the authority, all the power, even I am not here to receive service, but to serve. Jesus did not take advantage of his godness, his divinity, for his own benefit, but always poured it out for the benefit and good of others. Jesus is redefining greatness as a servant's heart, humility, or servanthood. And what does servanthood look like? It looks like actions born of an attitude of humility and selflessness. 
one concept of it would be that there's nothing beneath you, nothing beneath you to do. There was a story I had heard years ago at a pastor's conference where this one pastor was up there talking about years before when he was on the staff of this mega church in Southern California, pastor by this guy named Chuck Smith, who started the Jesus movement and some stuff like that. So Chuck Smith's the pastor of this mega church, and apparently some heavy rains had fallen that morning, and the, the parking lot was flooded in various places, including right up to the doorway. And what had happened was like about 10 or 15 minutes before the service was starting, a bunch of the elders and pastors were standing around looking at it as people were sort of trying to figure out how to get into the building. Some of them were walking through in their shoes through like ankle-deep water. And Chuck Smith gets out there and he says, what's going on here, guys? Well, there's the problem. And he goes out there, takes off his shoes and climbs into the, the sewer area, starts pulling out all the debris that had clogged up the sewer. And in about 15 minutes, it cleared up and they started the service. And he went back in and he preached. And the guy was like, oh, that's what it is to be the lead pastor. Got it. What Jesus is talking about is giving yourselves to others in good for them, in benefit to them, even if you don't get recognition or praise. Like caring for an aging or terminal spouse. Where Day in and day out, you are meeting their needs, even if they lose the ability to respond to you. And you do it day in and day out, month in and month out, giving yourself in service to feed and wash and help when nobody notices. You get no title for that. There's no plaque on the wall, no trophy at the end of the, the season. But God sees Paul talked about it in Philippians 2 when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does it look like to live this out in our workplaces, in our marriages, at school, in the neighborhood? Well, the, a good question to ask on, like, if you're trying to figure out how to do something that God is inviting us into, it's what gets in the way of you doing it? The first thing that gets in the way of living out a servanthood life, a humble, servant-filled life, is ignorance. It's not realizing that this is what the kingdom of God is about. And that's essentially what James and John are doing. They don't realize this is what the kingdom of God is about. Well, the good thing for you guys is you now know. We've been talking about it for the past 15 minutes. You now know that giving yourself over for others, serving others, being humble is what we're called into. So ignorance is no longer an excuse. It's still hard though, right? Because we live in a culture and a world that has trophies at the end of T-ball, titles in our org charts. We're discipled by a phone that shapes our view of greatness. There's another value system that we're constantly drinking. And it fills us with other visions of what greatness is about. But even if we get past the being ignorant about it, we're all naturally filled with pride. And that gets in the way of living out the kingdom values that Jesus is talking about. Pride is, is two things. It's both having too high a view of yourself, but it's also having too low a view of yourself. you ask questions like this, why are you always feeling slighted or overlooked 
left out. And maybe, maybe in your own head you justify like, oh, I didn't really want to go to that restaurant with them. I don't like sushi that much. Why are we always defensive when criticized? Needing to be right. Well, the only reason I sometimes am is because I am right and I just need to explain it. Like, I know you're criticizing me, but here's why I did what I, let me explain it to you. If I explain it, you'll understand. That's not defensiveness, that's just kind of helping people to understand. Why do so many of us struggle with needing respect from others, recognition, and we struggle when others are praised? I mean, we don't struggle if they did something that was worth praising. Like if we see other people getting praise or recognition, we're like, oh yeah, they deserve it. But what about the people who don't deserve it? We've done just as much as them. Why are they getting recognition? Why do they get the praise? How do you feel when others make the grade, make the team, get the good review, come back with exciting news about getting engaged or having a baby? Their kid got into the school. We are always comparing or competing. And so we see other people as a threat, a threat to my position, my happiness, my sense of greatness. Or we use people. They're an asset to help me feel better. Pride is constantly fighting against what Jesus is inviting us into. And let's say you've gotten over pride. You will never get over this last one, which is selfishness. That's usually my favorite reason for not serving. It's because I don't want to. I just want to do what I want to do, and I'm really good at avoiding other people. It's not that I'm being mean to them actively, but I'm avoiding what God is calling me into because I just want to be with me. I'm pretty good. But Jesus is calling his disciples and that means all Christians, not just the 12. He's calling all Christians to a new way of thinking about others, to a new way of thinking about ourselves, because as he makes it clear, there is a new way of thinking about what matters. In Tim Keller's short book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he builds on the work of C.S. Lewis and he calls what Jesus is calling us to gospel humility. This is how he describes it. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody either because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. He goes on to say, gospel humility is not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to the thought such as, I am in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It is a freeing self-forgetfulness. So how do we do that? 
How do we do that? Where do you get the motivation and power to live like that? The problem is every definition of greatness that we have, whatever it is we're after to define our lives as mattering or great, is done by performance. You must live up to some standard, your mom's standards, your company's standards, the school's standards, your own standards. You must live up to somebody's standards. And if you're doing it, you're going to feel great, but if you're falling short in the performance, you're going to feel awful about yourself because you can't live up to it. Each one of us needs to know we matter, that we are accepted and loved and worthy, not based on our performance or how we measure up. And of course, that means we need the gospel. Jesus says to the disciples, to be great is to be a servant, to be first is to be slave. And then he says in verse 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When Jesus says for, notice that he doesn't say the word like, okay? And, and the Greek is the same there as well. What he's saying is this, is like, not be a servant, be humble like I am humble and a servant. Instead, he's saying because of what I am doing for you. Not like me, but because what I am doing for you. If Jesus was just an example like Mother Teresa or Gandhi, then probably only a few of us in this room would be able to live up to it. And the rest of you would feel jealous and inferior to us. But Jesus is not an example only. He is the ransom. And the ransom means payment for a debt to set somebody free from slavery. It was a technical term. It was a technical term about somebody who was a slave or a prisoner of war and a massive payment being made to release them from that slavery, from that bondage. Jesus is saying, I have come to give my life to pay the debt to set you free. The cross is, of course, what he's talking about. I have come to die for you, to set you free from sin and self. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that everyone needs to be ransomed and anyone can be set free. We have been set free. Our debts have been paid. And it's not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. So the gift of that freedom is just that a gift. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. You did nothing to earn it. He did everything to give it. Just receive it. And so the gospel is the power to live out that selfless humility, that kingdom values of Jesus because the gospel changes our view of ourselves and of what matters. The gospel humbles me because it reminds me that I am sinful and need to be set free, that I can't measure up, that I need to be ransomed, that I need somebody else to save me. And it says that each one of us is equally a sinner. So I am humbled and can never feel superior to anyone. But I'm also assured because I know that I'm loved 
Jesus has set me free. I matter. I am loved. And it's not because of something I do. So whether my performance this week is good or bad, whether I'm measuring up to my standards, comparing to others, it doesn't matter. I'm loved and accepted because of what Jesus did on the cross already. And this frees me. It can free me from self-absorption, from comparison, from a performance mindset, from measuring my greatness on how I'm doing with you. Because of the gospel, again, to borrow from Keller, I no longer care what you think of me, but I also don't even care what I think of me. I am loved and accepted by the only one that matters. So I'm finally free from myself. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem here in Mark 10 with his disciples. And he's teaching them this. True greatness is walking in the way of the cross for others. And true freedom is only found at the foot of my cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, whose most dear Son, Jesus, the Son of Man, went not up to joy and glory, but first he suffered pain and was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace and freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Release from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was ransom, he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. When death was rusted, It's your end.